0: Good morning, Park Hill. So happy to be with all of you. First off, because I'm from the Pacific Northwest where we have this thing called winter that those of you that are from down here, you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's not like when you put on the light Patagonia fleece. It's a whole other thing, and so we came down a few days early just to sit on your beach and and revel in the jealousy, so um, well done. We're going back to snow this coming week, so enjoy it. I'm so happy to be here just for that alone on a narcissistic reason, but really more importantly, our love and our respect for Evan and Sandy in particular, but all of your leaders, just runs so very deep. There's a saying, as the leaders go, so goes the church and that bodes incredibly well for you as a community. One of the things we've been learning about back home over the last few years is just, I think, a a new level of awareness of how much contempt is the norm in our culture, particularly with the political outrage over the last few years, but especially, at least in our city, with the millennial and kind of that ethos, there's so much contempt, arrogance, entitlement, disdain, And we're learning about a biblical theology of honor, which, for those of us born and raised in the West Coast, is a foreign concept. And um, I would encourage you to chase that down, and in the meantime, honor your leaders. Evan and Sandy are some of the best leaders I know. They've literally given so much of their life and their family to use a community, and the same is true for so many of your other leaders, people who moved here, who have worked part-time jobs, to just make something like this happen, not in their own strength, but through their own sacrifice. And so may you honor them well. You're really blessed, and we're really blessed to be with you. If you have a Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 10. And I wanna, I wanna make this fast so I can just go sit outside. <laughs> and rumor has it, I've been here once before, it was the longest teaching in Park Hills history, so I just feel like I need to start off with an apology. <laughs> and attempt to make up for my sin last time around, like a good guilt-based Westerner. Um, all right, penance, that's what this is. No. The philosopher Dallas Willard once called hurry the great enemy of spiritual life in our day and said, quote, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. When I first came across that line, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. It was passed down to me by a mentor, and I had two equal and opposite reactions. At one level, my mind, in all honesty, said, that's ridiculous. I live in you know, one of the most secular, progressive, post-Christian, whatever you want to call it, cities in all of America. A recent survey voted Portland the least religious city in our country. And if you were to ask me prior to hearing that, what's the greatest challenge that you face just following Jesus in a city like Portland or on the west coast of America, much less as a pastor or a leader in a community, what, I, don't, I have no idea what I would have said. Partisan politics or online outrage or shame culture or contempt or sexuality or the income inequality of our nation or the racial divide. I don't know what I would have said. I doubt that hurry would have even made it onto the list, much less at the top. So my mind had this thought of like really hurry, like that's the great challenge that we face in the modern era, I don't think so. But my gut at some deeper level past my prefrontal cortex had a very different experience. The best I can say, it was like a tuning fork. Are you familiar with a tuning fork? If you are a musician or you've ever used one, you hit a tuning fork and you literally feel your bones tremor as they come into contact with, say, Middle C. And if you know anything about music theory, like Middle C was not invented by Phil or Evan. It was woven into the, surprising, I know, But it was literally created by God. Middle C is woven into the fabric of reality. And when you hit a tuning fork, your body begins to tremor as it comes into contact, to resonance with reality. And at some deep psycho-spiritual level, that's what it felt like for me. And the longer that I've sat with Willard's thesis that hurry really is the great challenge for you and I and our apprenticeship to Jesus in our time, the more I agree. The more I've come to the conviction that hurry is the issue underneath so many of the other issues of toxicity in our cultural moment, of of low-grade anxiety that is the normal, of chronic anger, of outrage culture, of digital distraction, of the loneliness and the ache for belonging, of exhaustion, of burnout, of so much. Carl Jung, the, Carl Jung the, psycho- the psychologist who coined the kind of framework of introvert and extrovert and whose work became the basis for Myers-Briggs, used to regularly say, hurry isn't of the devil, it is the devil. I don't know about you, but when I think of the devil, I, I picture in my mind a little red cartoon with a pitchfork on his shoulder, or Will Ferrell on SNL, or something like that. I don't normally picture another alert on my iPhone. Or another round of late-night Instagram or email or another binge-watching whatever on Amazon Prime or Netflix or another meeting or another activity on the weekend crammed in into a life of speed. And yet, if you think about it, the effect of hurry on our soul is devastating. Corey Ten Boom once said, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. And there's a fascinating like, link there in sin. What is sin? Like most Christians defined it as missing the mark, but often Westerners think about the mark as some abstract, platonic, perfect ideal. What if the mark is union with God? What if sin is missing a living relational connection to the God who is the source of all life? Well, if you define it that way, then sin and busyness essentially have the same effect on the soul. They cut us off from our living connection to God. About four years ago, we kind of rebuilt our entire church around spiritual formation. And if you're new to that language, it's just insider lingo. Christians love insider lingo. For um, the process by which we change, we grow, and we mature to become more like Jesus, and in doing so, utterly, ourselves. And we came to a very hard realization that our church at the time was really not set up for most people to grow and, did the airplanes just go over all day long? (laughs) Okay, let's just acclimate to that. You don't look phased. I'm phased, but you don't. So, all right. (laughs) We realized that our church was not set up for a high kind of high level of growth into maturity for the majority of our people. So we came up with what we call a working theory of change, which is our best synthesis of biblical theology and neuroscience and all of that stuff, and just our best grasp that this is how, this is the how we grow and mature into the kind of people who live the Sermon on the Mount, who live Matthew five, six, and seven. Just, it just flows out of the inner nature of our being as we have been transformed in the language of New Testament to become like God. That's what the word godly means. And so before we kind of went live with it and rebuilt all of our communities around a practice-based approach to discipleship and all of this stuff, I sat down with a PhD in town who's (laughs) just like, literally does not stop (laughs) with us. (laughs) Okay, we're just gonna act like there's no giant airplane flying over in the middle of the sermon, fantastic. Um, Thanks for the heads up on that, Evan, so much. (laughs) Appreciate you, really. Maybe he's not the leader I thought he was, I don't know. No, I'm kidding. But I sat down with this psychologist who's this 70-year-old Quaker, brilliant PhD, very well-respected, and I booked a little time with him just to run our working theory of change. And I wanted to get him to critique it, you know, plug holes in it, kind of add in, all of that. And for most of it, he's really quiet and would just nod his head and said, yes, that's right. need would add an insight here or an insight there and a little minor correction or a little confirmation. But he had very little to say until the end. And then he just was quiet for a moment and he said, it's all great, but then he said this, and I will never forget it. was a real kind of landmark moment for me as a leader and thinker. He said, the number one problem that you will face is time. He was quiet for another moment, and then he said, most people are just too busy to live emotionally healthy and spiritually rich and vibrant lives. His experience in 40 plus years as a therapist, all up and down the West Coast, at a high level of expertise, was that, The main problem is not that people aren't smart enough. It's not that they have a hard or obstinate heart. It's not that they have some kind of deep wounding they can't recover from. The main problem is that people are just too busy. There's just too much to do. They don't have time to actually live what Jesus called life to the full. Psychologists now are diagnosing people with what they call hurry sickness, which is actually a thing, not a joke. Psychology today defines it as a malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time. Anybody? And so tends to perform every task faster and to get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. The moniker hurry sickness was coined actually back in the 50s by the Dr. Meyer Friedman who was the first cardiologist to theorize that there was a connection between chronic heart disease or risk for heart disease and people who are type A, angry all the time, in a hurry. He was the first one to figure, to connect the dots between the two. He defined it as a continuous struggle and unremitting attempt to accomplish and or achieve more and more things and to participate in more and more events in less and less time. And he identified it as a major problem for the United States in the 1950s. Half a century later, it's like a contagion that has spread through our society. Time Perspective Therapist, yes, that's a thing, Rosemary Sword, and psychologist Philip Zimbardo of Stanford and their book on this offer three symptoms to self-diagnose whether or not you have hurry sickness. Number one, you move from one checkout line to another because it's shorter. (laughs) Anybody? (laughs) Like, doesn't everybody do that? Two, when you come to a stoplight, you count the cars ahead of you and you get into the shortest lane. You know who you are. And three, you multitask to the point that you forget one of the tasks. Anybody? Now, not to play armchair psychologist, but I'm pretty sure you all have hurry sickness, except for about three of you. And the ongoing effect of hurry and this over-busy normal in our society is just devastating on the soul itself. Think about it. What's the first thing that most people say when you ask the customary, hey, how are you? What do people say? Oh, good. Just... Busy. Pay attention. You will hear this across all of the lines that we hear so much about in our culture. Across gender, across class, across ethnicity, across the urban, suburban, rural divide. Everybody I talk to is busy. College kids are busy. Young parents are busy. Professionals are busy. Empty nesters are busy. Working class people are busy. Elites are busy. Children are busy. Everybody I talk to except for my African friends who are new to the country who all point out to me, you Americans are so busy. It's the first thing most of them notice. Now we need to clarify before we go any further that there are different types of busyness and not all of them are unhealthy. There's a type of busyness that just means you have a lot to do, and you're not wasting your life just playing Call of Duty, you know, until the wee hours of the morning, but you're generative. You have meaning and purpose, something that's beyond you and your own hedonistic pleasure. You're giving your life away. By that definition, Jesus himself was busy. You could argue that he was very busy. His life was very full with creative, generous love. But there's a far more common and, I think, more toxic form of busyness that is the normal for most of us, what Ronald Rollheiser, one of my favorite writers, calls pathological busyness. And the essence of pathological busyness is not when you have a lot to do, it's when you have too much to do. And so the only way to cram it all in is to speed up your life to this pace of hurry, to speed up your mind, to speed up your body, to speed up your interactions with other people and your relationships to a pace that is incompatible with life in the kingdom of God. It is this kind of busyness or hurry to which Bill Gates was referring to when he recently said, busy is the new stupid. This is not an intelligent way to live. And it has all sorts of implications for our emotional health and for our spiritual life. The professor, Michael Zigarelli, conducted a survey of 20,000 Christians in the U.S., and he identified busyness as the number one like major block in most American Christians' relationship to God. Listen to the summary of his 20,000-plus-person survey. It may be the case that, one, Christians are assimilating a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to, two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to, three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to, four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live which leads to five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and then the cycle begins again and starts to feed off of its own energy like a flywheel. Pastors, by the way, are the worst. You rated pastors right up there with doctors and lawyers for being caught up in the busyness. Not me, but people like Evan really struggle with this. (laughs) But it's true, I, I was, Well, I don't like your airplanes, but you laugh easy. I like that about your community. We'll take that. I was cut to the, (laughs) there we are, right there. (laughs) I was cut to the heart by Ruth Haley Barton's 10 signs that you're moving too fast through life. This is her, not me, but just take a moment with this. Irritability, meaning you're just quick to, and don't think about like a stranger or even a coworker. Think about your roommate or your parents or your people that you're really close to, that you're actually yourself around, like we're just, you're so quick to just snap at people or get agitated or get annoyed or get irritable. Hypersensitivity, little things set you off or a little critical comment will just make throw you into a funk for a day. You just have low like level to just kind of let things roll off your back and chuckle at yourself. You take yourself way too seriously. Restlessness, when we actually do attempt to rest, like we set aside a night to just be home or we attempt to practice Sabbath, we can't because we have this anxiety that's on our system, this digital addiction, and we just have to turn on the music or turn on a TV or something like that. We just, we can't actually sleep when we actually set aside time. We're just at this speed of life we can't come down from. Compulsive overworking, you just find yourself another late night email for fury or another thing or another meeting or another hour lost at the office. Emotional numbness, you lose like you be, you have this like very you end up with this very narrow bandwidth of emotions where most all that you feel anymore is anger or anxiety and most of the deeper emotions in particular empathy where you feel another person's pain that's gone like you just don't have the capacity for that anymore Escapist behaviors, you end up just disappearing into the black hole of the device, be it social media or Netflix or shopping or substance abuse or church or whatever it is. You just get sucked into some attempt to escape from the exhaustion of everyday life. Disconnected from our identity and calling, we just get so busy that we forget who we are and who we're not, what we're called to do, what we're not called to do. We, we no longer live from this deep center, what Thomas Kelly called the unhurried center of peace and power. Our life becomes more reactive than proactive. It's not based around compassionate love and clarity. It's based around people-pleasing or fear or anger or obsession or OCD or perfectionism or drive or ambition, Not able to attend to basic human needs such as sleeping a minimum of eight hours a night for most people, a little margin which Dr. Swanson defined as the space between our load, our limits, healthy eating, cooking at home, drinking plenty of water, just basic Self-care, human maintenance as an act of love to God. Hoarding energy. You ever do this where, like, you feel yourself pull back from somebody emotionally because you have to save it for the office tomorrow or save it for another meeting, and you're like, I just can't get sucked into the drama of this person right now, so I'm just going to kind of quietly slip away or whatever. Because you have to hold back because you you're, like, constantly monitoring your energy. You know, I, I'm not the only idiot in the room. All right. And then finally, slippage in our spiritual practices. The time that we dedicate just to cultivate our awareness of and and attention at and even adoration of God himself to just sit in the quiet and let God love us. That just goes down as our to-do list, our busyness, our overcommitment, our life of speed ramps up. Are you feeling guilty yet? I'm just here to bring the shame all the way from, the, from, from winter. No, absolutely no shame. That's not remotely the point of this exercise. The first time I read her list, I was at least 7 for 10. And then my lovely wife down here was like, no, you're 10 for 10, 100%. <laughs> the point here is not guilt or shame. That's just not remotely helpful. And I, I say that most of that stuff earlier was just to, to, to laugh a little bit about it. It's just to point out that there's more at stake here than our emotional health. In fact, some of you, I'm guessing it's under 10%, but some of you are just very high capacity people. You can just work insane hours, you can get a ton done, you can cram your life full, and you can still be a pretty happy person. Most of us can't, I can't, I don't have that capacity, but some of you can. But there's far more at stake here than just our level of how chillaxed we are. Our spiritual life itself is under threat. I love this from Ronald Roheiser, again, one of my favorite writers. This is a long quote, but it's worth our time. Today, he writes, a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring, think of secularism and the phone and urbanization, all of this, to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It is not that we have anything against God, depth and spirit, we would like these. It is just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. Now, we need to immediately define what we mean by spiritual lives because that language is really easy to sentimentalize. It's used inside and outside the church. It's used a lot, and I think very few people actually have a high degree of mental traction around what they mean by that. When I say spiritual life, what I mean is our capacity To receive and give love in relationship to God and other people. To receive love from God and others in community, and then to give that love back to God and away to other people, our family, our friends, and eventually as we mature in the way of Jesus, the end goal is even to our enemies. Evan said it so beautifully earlier this morning, I could not quote it for you verbatim, but about how God is a relationship. The language that we've come to use in the West for that is Trinity, but in biblical theology, God is in three persons. God is a relationship because God is love, and love cannot exist outside of relationship. And Jesus has invited us into this eternal love relationship and community that is God himself. This is the essence of spiritual life and of love. And hurry is incompatible with love. They are oil and they are water. The late Japanese theologian Kosuke Koyama has this beautiful little book from the late 70s called Three Mile An Hour God. I had to Google it. Apparently, three miles per hour is the speed of walking. And he just makes the point that the speed of walking is the speed of God. It's a little collection of essays, and in his title essay, Three Mile an Hour God, he writes this, God walks slowly because he is love. If he is not love, he would have gone much faster. Love has its speed. It is an inner speed. It is a spiritual speed. It is a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed It is slow, yet it is lord over all other speeds, since it is the speed of love. And as we come to Luke in just a moment, we see this on display in Jesus of Nazareth. If you've read the four Gospels, or the four biographies of Jesus, one of the first things you notice is that Jesus was rarely, if ever, in a hurry. As busy as his life was by the healthy definition, as full as his life was, you just never read about Jesus in this kind of late, I don't have time, I'm stressed out kind of hurry mode. Willard was once asked, if you could describe Jesus in one word, what would it be? He thought about it for a moment and he said, relaxed. Is that how you think of Jesus? I don't know what I would have said, powerful or godlike or wise or wicked smart or something. That's two words. Um, But... Ironic that it's wicked smart, and that's a whole other thing, but, but relaxed, and Jesus just comes off this way as so present to the moment, so present to whoever is in front of him, and not just the cool person or the famous person or the demanding person, but often the person off on the margins or the side of the road or the person sitting in the back of the synagogue hiding the withered hand. Present to his own soul, what he was thinking, what he was feeling, how he was processing that before God. Present to God, our Father who is in the air, is one way to translate the Lord's Prayer. And present to what God was doing in the room with the soul in front of him. As Jesus said, I always do what I see the Father doing. That level of presence to the moment is one of the most compelling things, I think, in the life of Jesus. Think about how many of the stories in the four Gospels are interruptions. Just read through the Gospels and pay attention to that. I don't have a hard statistic for you. My guess would be well over half. And in each one, Jesus is just so present and rarely in a hurry. C.S. Lewis once said something to the effect that how you respond to an interruption is who you really are. That's so painful to hear. Especially as a parent, where you realize that 90% of parenting is like not being angry over interruptions. <laughs> but man, I don't know about you, I, I, most interruptions in my life are from people, and from people often close to me, and I, my, my default setting is to respond to an interruption with anger, agitation, hurry, busyness, I don't have time, we'll talk about it later. But Jesus would often go the opposite direction, presence, compassion, compassion. Wisdom, love, rebuke, courage, clarity, whatever the moment called for. And he calls you and I as his apprentices to live at that same loving pace of life, what he in another spot called the easy yoke. Let's take a look at a well-known story in Luke chapter 10 that it's easy to forget was actually all out of an interruption. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the Torah stood up to test or to interrogate or really to critique Jesus. Rabbi, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, don't read that like a West Coast kind of American Christian. What do I need to do to go to heaven when I die? That's not exactly the question that he's asking. He's asking at the climax of human history, when the Messiah comes to usher in the kingdom of God, at the resurrection of the dead, what do I need to do to take part in that resurrection and to step into life in the kingdom of God? Not somewhere else, but right here on this earth made new. Now, I came from a church tradition where I would expect Jesus to say this. Dude, you don't, and he would say dude, because I grew up on the West Coast. "Um, You don't need to do anything. It's not about what you do, it's about what I've done for you or I'm about to do for you, future tense. All you need to do is just believe. Stop striving and just believe. Unfortunately, I don't think Jesus got the memo, because that's not remotely what he says. Twenty-six. Instead, he says this: "What is written in the Torah?" He replied. "And how do you read it?" Oh, fascinating! So he he answers the question with a question about the interpretation of the Bible. He's you know his he's acute enough to realize there's a difference between what the Bible says and what it means, and that often that little gap there is where we get in trouble. How do you read it? What's your interpretation of the Torah? The man answered 27 with a quote from Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And then a quote from Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. If that answer sounds familiar to you, it's because this is the same answer that Jesus gave when he was asked this question. Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19, love God with all that you are, love neighbor as self. Hence, 28, Jesus said, you have answered correctly which would be nice to hear from Jesus, in my opinion. Like, ah, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, some argue that this is Jesus messing with the man. He's saying you can't actually do this, and so there's no possible way, and that could be. I don't think so, though. I think Jesus is saying, if you live this way, if you live with a whole person orientation of love toward the God who has already been loving you from before you were ever out of your mother's womb, and if you then share that same orientation of love toward all around you, friend, family, and even enemy, then you will live. You will experience not just quantity of life forever, but quality of life that is rich and at peace. That is what Jesus called life to the full in the kingdom of God love is the center of everything and if you live with the whole person orientation of love toward God from God toward neighbor from neighbor you will flourish and thrive I think that's all that he's saying but if only the story was over there it's not 29 he the man wanted to justify himself and it's easy to critique him but how often do we want to justify ourselves? meaning we just want to feel good about ourselves. How often are you exposed to another way of thinking that calls into question the way that you have been living? And if you're anything like me, your inner defense mechanism just goes up and you start to make excuses, you start to argue in your mind, you start to justify, you start to figure out a way to write it off because you just wanna feel good. Most of us just don't mess with my life, I have it going on just fine. Don't make me feel bad about myself and the way that I'm living. He wanted to justify himself. He's just like all of us. So he made the mistake of attempting to challenge Jesus. And he said, and who is my neighbor? Now in reply, this next story, we'll read through it. Most of you know the story. But notice the whole thing is in reply to an interruption. This is all off the cuff. Jesus said this, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Um, This is a well-known road. Some of you, I'm guessing, have been there. I've been there. You can go to this day and walk it. It's um, about a day's walk from Jerusalem down to Jericho at the Dead Sea. It is a very dangerous road, I and mean, it's like the, one of the most barren, rocky, craggy kind of crevice parts of all of the Middle East. It looks like, best thing if you are not, not been there that I can think of is like, you know the scene in Star Wars A New Hope when R2-D2 is lost, and he's like, you know, really, and he's like scared going through, and the little Jawas jump out and like, ooh like that whole thing. It looks exactly like that. Scary, desert, barren, and there's these little crevices all along this road. And so in Jesus' day, um, this was a notorious road. It would be like saying, going to a a really dangerous neighborhood or something like that. It was a well-known area for theft, robbery, murder, vice, where criminals would hide in these crevices and then jump out and attack people on the road. In fact, a number of scholars don't think this is a parable. A number of scholars think this is actually a well-known story about civil rights. We'll get to that in a moment. Similar to the way that we tell stories from the civil rights movement today. A number of scholars think this actually happened. Either way, it's a beautiful story. It goes on. 31. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. This man's likely dead there on the side of the road. He just moved to the other side and passed. So to a Levite... When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. A Levite was a kind of professional worker at the temple, kind of a rung down from the priest. 33, but a Samaritan, if you know anything about kind of first century history, Jews and Samaritans were, were, there was more than just racial tension between them. They were literally at odds and had been at war for many years. All very thick kind of xenophobic tension between the two groups. As he traveled, he came to where the man was, but when he saw him, He took pity on him or had compassion on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. Notice how long this would have taken. The next day, so now we're a whole 24-hour delay. He took out two denarii, that's two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you happen to have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Jesus question. And notice this whole thing is just a question. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Notice he can't even bring himself to say the man's name. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He can just bring himself to save the, the one who had mercy. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, this is such a well-known story. For, I'm, for that, I'm grateful. But the downside to a well-known story is that we sentimentalize it. And it's actually a very raw and very subversive story. I have a childhood friend who was a Messianic Jew for many years, meaning a Jew who was following Jesus as the Messiah eventually immigrated to Israel and denied her faith. And when I asked her why, she said this story. She said, I I could never follow a Messiah who would tell me to love my enemies like that, who would make a Samaritan the hero of the story. The Samaritan is the enemy of the Jew. This is a story about racism, about ethnic tension, about violence and nonviolence. And the subversive thing is that Jesus makes the wrong person the hero. He makes a Samaritan the hero. We, we talk about the good Samaritan as if like this nice person who helps you change your tire on the side of the road back when people actually knew how to do that before AAA and all that stuff. I don't even know what I would do if I got a flat tire other than without cell service, I would be lost. Um, but we, you know, we talk about, oh, that's a good Samaritan. But in, to a first century Jew, that would have been for us like hearing the good ISIS member or the good Taliban or the good you fill in your group that you anesthetize the most. And I just wanna call your attention to one very simple thing from this well-known story this morning. Just think for a moment about how much time the Samaritan gave to an interruption. Over an entire day, just to help a random person he was not in community with on the side of the road in love the definition of love your neighbor as yourself. It's easy to mock the priest and the Levite until you actually begin to like get your head around first century culture and the background to it. Historians argue that These two men, the priest and the Levite, would likely have been on a journey that most priests and Levites worked in Jerusalem, but lived in Jericho, and worked on a two-week shift at the temple. And so they likely are either going to the temple or they're coming home, and they have not seen their family in over two weeks. And they also tell us that they were paid in tithes and offerings, which are at the time were not like numbers on a bank account through an app that you have on Sunday morning. Your tithes and your offerings were animals for the most part, or fruit from your crops. And they would then take these animals and crops home to feed their family. And the Torah was very clear and very rigorous in all sorts of commands around what happens if you come in contact with a dead body. You are unclean and anything that you carry is unclean, and you have to go through a rigorous multi-day process. All of the food would have had to be thrown out, and they would have had to go through a multi-day process of cleansing. So imagine if you're coming home from the temple, you literally have food to feed your family for the next few weeks. You have not seen your family in weeks, and there's a person on the side of the road who is likely dead, 99.9% sure they're already dead, and if not, this is a busy road. Other people will come along behind them. What would you do? Now, my point is not to justify their behavior. It's just to say, we do this all the time. How often do we walk past somebody and we're like, oh, that's, that's lame, I'm sure somebody else will take care of that, I'm late for church, or whatever it is, or I need to get home to my family, or I need to be there to volunteer, or whatever. Not bad thing, this is just real life. Jesus' teachings, far from being some you know, platonic ideal or allegory, this is, real, this is what life is actually like. The wrong people are heroes. The right people disappoint us with hypocrisy and all of us just get sucked into the busyness and miss opportunity after opportunity for love. And Jesus here calls his disciples to go and do likewise. This is Jesus' vision of what love for neighbor looks like. Unhurried, open to interruption, present to the pain and joy of the people around you, all in love because hurry is incompatible with love. And for Jesus, Best I can tell, the telos of the spiritual journey itself, put another way, the meaning and purpose of life is to become the kind of person who is pervaded by love, who loves God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, who loves neighbor as self. In Jesus' one line summary of the Sermon on the Mount in Luke's version, he has this one line summary Be compassionate as your Father in heaven is compassionate. For Jesus, compassionate love, that is what God is like at his core. And that is who we are on track to become as we follow him. And hurry sabotages both our capacity to receive love from God and to give love to God and to others. First off, to receive love from God. My working theory of how we become more loving, there's hours of conversation here. At its most basic, it's very simple. We let God love us. We become more loving by experiencing love through the spirit of God by Jesus not just by hearing about it or reading a book about it or a theological class about it, all beautiful things. We become more loving when we experience that love coming to us through the Trinitarian community of agape. As Paul said, that you may know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. But it takes time to let God love us into people of love. It turns out, I don't have the allergic reaction that many Westerners do to good works or what they would call workspace righteousness, again, not language used by the New Testament writers. I think it's an unwarranted fear. But it turns out that most of our work as followers of Jesus, and I do think that absolutely we have work to do, not to earn anything, um, but to create space. Most of our work is just to slow our life down and to make space for God to do the deep work of healing and change in us that's 90% of the work, is just how do I slow down? How do I make space? How do I calm my mind and set my attention on the God who is loving me by the Spirit into a person of love? All intimate, close relationships take an enormous amount of time. Relationships are horribly inefficient in an efficiency-obsessed culture. Every parent knows this, every lover knows this, Every best friend or BFF knows this. Any kind of close long-term relationship takes an extraordinary amount of just time spent in each other's presence for it to flourish and thrive. Our relationship with God is no different. C.S. Lewis spiritual director W.F. Adams once called hurry the death of prayer and said to walk with Jesus is to walk at a slow, unhurried pace. He was advocating for this in the 1940s. It comes as no surprise that a recent New York Times article called Atheism, the religion of the busy. Because busyness, hurry, Often, these are far greater threats. Just distraction itself from our phone is a far greater threat to our capacity to experience the love of God than any of the usual suspects. And secondly, and even more importantly, or just as importantly, I mean, hurry sabotages our capacity to give love. I don't know about you, but all of my worst moments as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a friend, are when I'm in a hurry when I'm trying to get my lovely type B wife down here and my three children out of the house, anything remotely resembling a specific time in space, it's just a disaster. Trying to get get my little kids out the door, whatever. If I pay attention to my body, when we're running 20 minutes late for church or whatever the thing is, and when I pay attention to what's coming out of my body, it is not love and compassion and wisdom. It's anger and annoyance. It's a biting comment. It's get in the car right now. It's why is your shirt on backwards again? It's, you know, that jacket does not match that thing. Get in the car. By the time we're like pulling out, one of my children is in tears. My wife and I are in a fight and I'm coming to teach on hurry at my church or whatever (laughs) it is. Is it any surprise that in Paul's definition of love, the first descriptor on his list is love is patience? Said another way, love is unhurried. That is a valid way to translate that. Hurry oxidizes our inner sense of compassion. Compassion is a feeling word that we read in Luke 10, but it takes time to feel compassion. You have to slow down long enough to feel and imagine and experience life from another person's point of view, another political party's point of view, another gender's point of view, another ethnicity's point of view, another religious tradition's point of view, another person's point of view. It takes time to actually slow down from our anger and our quick junk statements and actually feel compassion, even if we disagree, feel compassion and listen and attend to one another in love. Psychologists argue that feeling listened to and attended to has the same neurobiological effect on your brain and your nervous system as being loved. Even if you sit with somebody and you disagree with 98% of what they said, and at the end you say, I disagree with 98% of what you just said. But if you listen in attention and compassionate love, they will walk away feeling deeply loved by you. But this takes time, and hurry just doesn't have it. Thomas Burton called hurry a contemporary form of violence because it kills relationships, it kills compassion, it kills wisdom. It kills unity. It kills the ability to think well. It kills the ability to experience life with God himself. So what to do? I'm out of time, and I don't want to break my limit again. So very short end to this. Hurry! If hurry is the problem, the solution is not more time. That's not on offer to restructure the time-space universe. What is on offer is to slow down our life and simplify around becoming people of love. The way that you do this in the tradition of Jesus is through what ancient Christians called a rule of life. That's ancient language, not modern. We would never use anything with the word rule in it. Um, And so it sounds strange to our ear. It's rule singular, not plural, not rules for life, not a list of rules, um, though that's fine, but a rule of life. The Latin word was regula, and many scholars argue it was the word used for a trellis, In an ancient vineyard, if you think of Jesus' teaching in John 15, I would argue one of his most important, if not his most important, on abiding in the vine, his working theory of spiritual formation, that the way we bear fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, all of that, is we abide in the vine. We live in union with God. We live in relational connection to God by the Spirit. If you think about that metaphor, for a vine to bear fruit, it has to have a trellis, a support structure. Without a trellis, a vine will bear a fraction of the fruit that it is capable of and it will be vulnerable to wild animals and to disease. And so you lift it up off the ground with this support structure. And that's what a, what a trellis is to a vine, a rule of life is to a life of abiding with Jesus and how we bear much fruit. It is a schedule and a set of practices and relational rhythms that create space to receive and give love and to live in alignment with our deepest desires. Whatever the future of your city is and my city, whatever the future of the Church of the West in the West is, it is some kind of a neo-monastic kind of church order that is built around a rule of life where communities come together and say, this is how we follow Jesus together. This is how we follow Jesus in a day and age of iPhones and Wi-Fi and the post-modernity of everything and the breakdown of the family and transience and when people are only in a city for a year or two and then gone. This is how we as a community in the middle of all of this chaos in culture create a community of stability. Stabilitas, what the ancient monks would say. The center of calm and peace and abiding right in the middle of a world gone mad. If you go to practicingtheway.org slash unhurry, myself and our team made up a little workbook that's there for you to develop your own personal rule of life. It's easy, it's all free if you wanna take that and go with it farther. To end, really I'm calling you to a very simple thing this morning. I'm not calling you to do more with your already over busy life. Church doesn't work that way, following Jesus doesn't work, when your life is already over busy and maxed out and you just attempt to add more on top with Jesus, doesn't work that way. I'm calling you to subtraction, not addition, to slow down, to simplify, to not miss the interruptions that make for a life of love, to walk at three miles per an hour, to prioritize a life of abiding, to live. We cannot live in the kingdom of God with a hurried soul. Not we should not, not you should really feel guilty about it if you are, just we can't. It's not an option. Life in the kingdom with Jesus and life in the hurry, the busyness, the exhaustion, the distraction, and the overload of normal in West Coast America are at odds with each other. And Jesus' invitation is, as always, to come and follow him, to leave one kingdom for life in another. Let's stand together. It's been such a joy to be with you, and I'm going to turn it over to these guys. Let me just pray a blessing on you. If you want to put your hands out um, to receive from the Spirit, not from me, I just want to ask God to give to you a blessing. If you want to just put your hands out, kind of palms up, just the way that a little child on Christmas morning comes to receive Holy Spirit, come. God, would you bless this community with life by the Spirit? Would you bless this community with a rigorous, strong, ruthless in the healthy sense of the word, but yet relaxed, calm discipline to honor you with their time, their body, their mind, their relationships and their attention, to live The unhurried center of peace and power. Thank you for the rich spiritual history of this city, God. That even just walking around this morning, just feeling with an ache in my soul because my city doesn't have it, just this rich spiritual history stretching back generations. We thank you for that. We thank you for those that have been following Jesus in this city for decades. And now for this new generation, God, for this young church, for this beautiful fledgling community, may you grow them like a vineyard, God. May you build the structure, the trellis, the rule that enables them to not just bear fruit, but as you said, Jesus, to bear much fruit. And I pray that they, God, would bear much fruit, not even 30, not even 60, that's amazing, but a hundredfold.